The best place to play fantasy football this summer is Underdog Fantasy. Their Best Ball Mania tournament has $10 million in total prize money, and the best part is you just draft your fantasy football team and that's it. There's no waivers, no trades, no in-season management. Underdog gives you your best score each week of the season and the highest scores at the end of the year win. The champion of the Best Ball Mania last year drafted in June, the middle of the offseason. There's no time like now to take your shot at a million dollars with Underdog Fantasy. Plus, Underdog is going to double your first deposit up to $100 when you sign up with promo code PFF. Also, if you play 10 of those dollars using promo code PFF, you get a free PFF subscription. So what are you waiting for? Head to underdogfantasy.com or the App Store. Play $10 with code PFF and draft your best ball mania team today. back for a second time this week on the old live stream here on YouTube. I hope some of you were able to tune in yesterday when I went through some news of the week, including a controversy on tape versus stats for the five billionth time, a Twitter kerfuffle on that, which I you know, actually helped create. I probably did create uh, with that one. This is going to be different. It's not going to be the inane argument of the week on football. It's not going to be parsing uh, little details on players' Instagram pages. It's not going to be looking at the hype or the spin coming out, best best shape of life season for everyone there in the NFL. Nope, nope, none of that stuff today. Today, we are going to continue a series, the second installment of a series that I started last week, where it's going over the greatest statistical quarterbacks of all time. And this, I took a lot of inspiration from different places, places that I forgot to properly attribute and thank uh, people. I forgot to properly attribute and thank based upon what they've done in the past, because I was looking at, you know, not only current rankings that I do every year for quarterback, but then trying to get historical perspective on some of the current quarterbacks. And as, as I started to dig more and more into it, as I scraped a ton of different information from pro, pro football reference, thought about how to properly contextualize quarterbacks career value that they're adding along with their peak. Cause you want to give a little extra for peak in my book, when we're looking at greatest of all time, and then also looking at the playoffs. The playoffs are where legacies are made, and it's also where a lot of value can be added. So thinking about all those different elements, once I started to calculate all this out, I said, you know what? Why don't I turn this into some content for the site? And let me tell you, I hope you guys enjoy this stuff as much as I do. Some of this historical stuff, uh, like I said, very applicable to what's going on today and looking at quarterbacks today and misconceptions we have about who are the best quarterbacks today based upon some statistical issues that we have. Um, But I really enjoyed this a lot. And I have spent, you know, entirely too much time, honestly, on notes for all these different players. And it's really great to see some of the greats from the past that I didn't have enough appreciation for, either because they played when I was very young or they played even before my time. And then mixing those in, with some of the greats that really are lodged a little bit more in my in my head here, because uh, there are current players too 
who are going to be on this list overall going to be on this list. The only qualification I had for the current players is they have to have played at least eight seasons because I believe someone like Patrick Mahomes might already show up as having added enough career peak and playoff value in order to qualify for being somewhere in the forties on this list. But I didn't want to do that for a player who hasn't gotten that far in. Instead, I was going to concentrate more on those who have built mostly their hall of fame cases already mostly their goat cases already they do make it onto this list but the acknowledgements first and again I want to get this out of the way and also give much thanks to those that I cribbed a lot from for this uh first one is Brad Oremland he is a former uh football writer he's on Twitter you can follow him at Brad Oremland and he's he did a series on best quarterbacks in history for a site called Football Perspective You can find uh, Chase Stewart, who runs Football Perspective, also on Twitter. For a while there, he was putting out a single piece of analysis every single day for years. Um, Not necessarily, obviously, the most in-depth stuff because of the demands of coming out with that sort of production volume. But really interesting, hitting an interesting way of, of looking at things on a statistical basis. And let's face it. You know, 90% of the work you're doing from a stats basis is really with the initial take that you can calculate through the numbers pretty quickly. And then the rest of it is digging further and further into it. So his series on the best quarterbacks in history, where he goes through, I believe, the top 100, although he may only write up the top 50. I use that a lot to not only compare how my rankings looked versus his, but also make sure that after I had done my write-ups on them, giving historical perspective, especially on the players who I didn't know that well from the past, that he didn't have any notes in there. And he has some great nuggets and stats and comparisons in there. Some of it I'm incorporating in here. If plagiarism is a thing in podcasts, I I admit to red-handed plagiarism here from a lot of the work that Brad had done in the past. Uh, Another person I want to bring up is Ben Taylor. Ben Taylor, you can follow him on Twitter. It's at LG35. That's E-L-G-E-E 35. Some of you may know him if you follow NBA stuff. I loved his GOAT series for the NBA. He had a top 40 NBA GOAT series that he did. A lot of his thinking about combining career and playoff and peak goes into this. But, you know, Ben probably doesn't even need my promotion anymore. When I first started following him, he had a, a little bit of a following, had a website, but then he started putting together these videos on his Thinking Basketball YouTube channel, and they have blown up. He gets hundreds of thousands of views where he really digs into the footage and brings in the stats, which he knows probably better than anyone, and also brings in the basketball, which he knows almost better than anyone. And he also has a Thinking Basketball podcast, so check out all of his stuff. Again, I am gratuitously taking some of the methodology here and bringing it into my own. Okay, before we go through 40 through 31 here of the top quarterbacks of all time statistically i will give a quick overview of the methodology here if you want something more extensive on the methodology check back to last week's episode where i go over the methodology in some more detail i go over some honorable mentions who do not make the top 50 like matthew stafford and kirk cousins who were in the ballpark there who are still playing and i go through Quarterbacks 50 through 41, including Bob Greasy, including uh, Bobby Lane, who's a very, very, very famous quarterback, but he statistically from the olden days doesn't look as good there. And some others that you'll names that you'll recognize in that podcast for for right now. I'm just going to explain the numbers that you're going to see on the screen when I bring up the players. If you're watching this on YouTube, 
those numbers are their overall ranking. So their overall ranking is really the GOAT ranking. Uh, and that ranking is derived by combining their career value. And the career value for me is regular season play, what I'm entitling career. It's all of their regular season play. It looks each season at if they're producing above basically a league average quarterback, maybe a little bit worse than a league average quarterback, because I want to give some credit for league average play, which is valuable in the NFL. So it's the accumulation through all of their regular seasons of that value, their passing value that they're going over uh, in efficiency and their rushing value. The efficiency metric, the main efficiency metric I'm looking at for passing efficiency, and this is a metric that I can use going all the way back to 1969 when includes sacks and I can go back further but excluding sacks and that is adjusted net yards per attempt fundamentally yards per attempt that's the foundational stat and should be the foundational stat of judging all quarterback play not how many yards you're accumulating but how many yards are you gaining per pass attempt now this stat adjusts off of that to give extra credit for touchdowns to take away credit based upon interceptions. And it also incorporates sacks by bringing negative yards for those sacks. And then the sacks also increase the, the, the denominator. So it becomes not just pass attempts, but then pass attempts plus sacks taken, which is more like a total drop back type of number. So all of that goes in. That's the main number. I give more credit for high passing volume seasons, less credit for lower passing volume seasons, but generally efficiency over counting stats. Counting stats is what you're going to hear in a lot of discussion when it comes to the Hall of Fame, it comes to careers, it comes to misunderstood quarterbacks, and probably one of the most misunderstood quarterbacks of all time is going to show up in this series today, and that is Joe Namath. And I'm going to explain why you can't just look at TDINT ratio, you can't just look at total passing yards, you have to also be looking at their efficiency as the main metric. So that's there. I have what I call the peak, which is the best five-year rolling period of value added in their career. So I give extra value for people who have had a high peak, even if they didn't have the accumulation of value as much over the, the course of their career. And then the last part is playoffs. So I'm going to look in playoff games in a similar way to how I look at regular season games, where it's the value you're adding over a league average-ish sort of quarterback. You're not getting credit for just playing in a lot of playoff games. You're not getting credit for winning playoff games when you're not playing well. You're getting credit for playing in games and winning them. So the guys who have played in the most games are going to get more credit because they have a better chance of accumulating value. But if they're not playing well, they're not going to get any credit. And I also give more credit to older players where the oldest players in this analysis, there was only one playoff game. It was the championship in the old uh, NFL before it merged with the AFL. Once you merged with the AFL, you had two playoff games in total, a maximum. And then eventually it goes to three. And then today we know you can have a maximum of four playoff games per offseason. So I make adjustments for the older players, give them a little bit more credit because, you know, Tom Brady here has 47 playoff games to his credit. And even the best players back in the olden days would have maybe six, seven playoff games would be an outstanding amount for them. Uh, based on the fact there was only one playoff game per season. And just to give you an idea, before I get into it, I know I'm uh, talking maybe a little bit too long here before getting into it, but that's kind of my specialty, my brand. One last thing is to say, like, what's the point of doing the statistical analysis versus just looking at somebody's opinion, a football historian's list? Well, the list here 
and this is the point of a lot of statistical analysis versus popular opinion versus football analyst opinion versus media analyst opinion is this gives us an easy, fast, clearly laid out. It's not opaque. It has an exact methodology looking, you know, exactly what is driving these metrics with their efficiency. And when I accumulate all this, you know, clicking a button, basically, once I have the formulas down, once I have the modeling down to spit out the list for me, it can be done very, very quickly. And I have 115 different quarterbacks who are close to qualifying as maybe they would be top 50. I can judge all of those and get them in exact order based upon this statistic. And as far as how it matches NFL historians, I think the best way to judge NFL historian opinion right now or the recent NFL historian opinion is to look at the NFL 100 list that came out within the last couple of years. And that list, the finalist of that list, there were nine quarterbacks on the list, but one of them was not a modern era quarterback. And when I say modern, I mean playing most of their playing time, at least in the mid forties and on. Uh, eight of them were modern quarterbacks. If you look at those eight quarterbacks who are on the list, and then you look at my rankings, which again, purely statistical based upon this passing efficiency, it shows you why these are good metrics to use for judging how good a quarterback is. If you look at my rankings, where do those eight quarterbacks show up? Well, they're number one, two, three, five, six, seven. So six of the, I'm sorry, of the nine. So six of the nine show up as in the top seven of my rankings. And then after that, 11, 13, and 19. So there is one of the of the top, top quarterbacks, the top nine quarterbacks, according to the NFL 100, who doesn't show up until 19 for me, but still all of them within the top 20, many of them right near the top, giving credence to these metrics being something you should pay attention to and maybe something to adjust off of versus what historian opinion may be of these players. Now, with that said, easy for me to say, right? After uh, uh, filibustering here at the top for quite a while, let's get into the list here, starting at number 40. This is going to be the most controversial player that you're going to see on this list. But before you, you know, click uh, in disgust and run out of here and delete your podcast episode and all that stuff, let me talk through it a bit here. And I will tell you that I do not believe this guy is the 40th best quarterback of all time, but he's probably a lot better than you think he was. And that person is Jeff Garcia. I can hear the booze in the background right here. Don't worry. There, we got other, we got a lot of other 49er quarterbacks to come after this for, for Garcia. So why, why Jeff Garcia? Well, you see the number, the numbers here that are on the screen. I'll relay them to those of us uh, watching, I mean, listening on the podcast. His career value is 44. So he's a little bit worse as far as his career value is concerned. His peak is 23, though. So we had a very high peak. I'll discuss that in a second. Playoffs, 89th rank. He didn't add a lot of value in the playoffs. And that's part of his poor perception is that he did not bring the playoff success that 49er fans were used to, almost felt entitled to after years of Montana and Steve Young. Um, so Jeff Garcia, let's talk about him here. It's tough to deny the numbers. So he played for the 49ers from 1999 to 2003. Then he spent time with the Cleveland Browns for a season, Detroit for a season, the Eagles and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. He spent time with all those different teams. People probably only remember his time with the 49ers. And he did have some accolades there, but he is bereft of accolades versus the other 
quarterbacks who we'll see in this tier, uh, many of whom are in the Hall of Fame. So Garcia was in the Pro Bowl four times, and he was a four-time All-Star with the CFL during his five seasons there before he came to the NFL. I'm not giving him credit for what happened in the CFL, but I do think it's an interesting data point that you should think about when judging his career because he did not start. He was not a starting quarterback in the NFL until he was 29 years old. So he missed a substantial part of his prime to be able to accumulate value. And that caps a lot of his career numbers as we're seeing here. His career numbers more in the in the 40s as opposed to being his rank of 40th. But he did lead three different teams to the playoffs. So not only was he leading the 49ers in the playoffs from 2000 to 2002, so for three seasons, but also the Eagles in 2006 and the Bucks in 2007. He wasn't merely a product of the 49ers offense. He wasn't merely a product of playing with Terrell Owens, which he did with the 49ers. He also had successful seasons elsewhere. And if we go through all of his different years that he had, um, and again, it's a shortened career because he didn't start till he was 29. He had one legitimately bad year where he came in in some relief duty for Joey Harrington. Joey Harrington, one of the biggest uh, busts, sorry, RIP, Joey Harrington uh, for Detroit. He came in in some relief work for him during his one season in Detroit, and he did not play well during that season. And he had one slightly below average year for his season in Cleveland. And again, I'm looking at adjusted net yards per attempt. But in his other eight NFL starting seasons, he was above average and he was well above average in some of those seasons. He has seasons where he ranked in efficiency, passing efficiency. He has a, a three different seasons where he was third, fourth and sixth. So he was a top six quarterback in three different seasons, as high as third in a particular season. And why he doesn't get as much credit, and I think it makes sense if we're talking about upside, if we're talking about value, if we're talking about greatness, I do think it makes sense that the efficiency isn't going to capture that in this way. And that is his primary driver of this efficiency was having a low interception rate. He was sub 2% for most of his career, led the NFL one year in that, and a low sack rate. He was sub 4%. Almost every single season, he was better than average as far as keeping his his interceptions low and his sacks low. So those are the weakest pieces of the puzzle when it came to looking at his quarterback efficiency. Um, the weakest pieces were yards per attempt and touchdown percentage. And those are the more of the wow, the wow stats for performance. Um, but he was not just a great elite passer. He didn't have high enough passing stats in and of itself to get up to this sort of ranking. He was a great rusher also especially if we're talking about in that era, not the era that we're talking about today. And especially if we consider that he did not start again until he was 29 years old. That's what gives him such a compelling peak ranking in this analysis is that the five-year period that we're talking about, his peak five years, his first five starting seasons with the San Francisco 49ers, he averaged over 300 rushing yards and four touchdowns per season during those five seasons. And he finished his career with well over 2,000 rushing yards and 26 touchdowns. Overall, amongst these 115 quarterbacks that I'm looking at, Garcia's career rushing value ranking was 25th for how much value that he added there. Um, for a modern comparison, he added a similar rushing value over his career to someone like Alex Smith, but he only had 10 starting seasons versus Smith had 14 starting seasons. So Alex Smith was a guy, if you played fantasy football, you knew you were going to get some juice from rushing the ball. You knew you were going to get some value from rushing the ball. And Garcia did play that way to give that extra value that might go unrecognized by some outside observers, but it doesn't go unrecognized. 
Terrell Owens factor, that plays against them there. Coaching or the perception of great coaching plays against him. He played for Steve Mariucci when Mariucci was seen as being the boy genius wonder there. He played for John Gruden in Tampa Bay, where Gruden in his first go around, of course, was seen as being a genius there. And then he played for Andy Reid in Philadelphia. That's going to discount him a bit, but he was successful in each of those locations. So I'm going to give him a little bit more credit there. And as far as Owens goes, yeah. He had Owens in San Francisco, but he had his second best season for Philadelphia where his top wideout in that season was Reggie Brown. And he had one of his best seasons as far as passing efficiency in Tampa Bay. And his leading receivers were Joey Galloway and Antonio Bryant. Decent receivers, of course, but not Hall of Fame receivers like like Terrell Owens. So Garcia is likely overrated. According to this analysis, his 40th ranking is too high. I agree with you when you're screaming that at the computer right now or at your headphones right now, but the common perception of him who probably wouldn't think of him as being anywhere near this top 50 goat QB sort of list is also not giving him enough, not giving him enough credit for success with multiple teams, multiple co- coaches, multiple supporting casts, and also the value that he brought on the ground for someone who didn't get a chance to start until he was 29 years old. All right, next on this list, a much more familiar name for a lot of people here, four-time Super Bowl appearance, Jim Kelly. He's 39 on the GOAT list here. His career ranking, according to value added in the regular season for me, is 41. His peak is 39, so he doesn't have the highest peak here. His playoffs are 55, even though he played a ton, a ton of playoff games. He did not perform statistically, at least, well during those playoff games. Yeah, the bar is a little bit higher against the defenses you have to play in the playoffs, but he did not come to play as much as you would have hoped there. He has another interesting career, and a lot of these guys are guys who started a bit later. He played 11 seasons for the Buffalo Bills from 1986 to 1996. Hall of Famer. So when we're talking about accolades here, while... Uh, Garcia did not have the accolades. Kelly got the accolades here as far as his career accolades, which was the Hall of Fame. He has one first-team All-Pro selection in 1991. So there was one year in the NFL where he was seen as being the best quarterback in the NFL. He lost out on the MVP award that season to teammate running back Thurman Thomas. He also has one second-team All-Pro the following season in 1991 and 1992. So there was a stretch there for a couple of years where he was seen as being the best or the second-best quarterback in the NFL. And that's an important peak that is not really represented in his five-year rolling numbers that I have as the statistical peak. So that undervalues him a bit in this analysis. So you have to start with the fact that what's also not part of this analysis is Kelly started two seasons in the USFL before he came to the NFL. 1984, 1985, he played for the Houston Gamblers, which is a name some of you may be familiar with now that, of course, the USFL is uh, back and in full force here. So, So his time with the Houston Gamblers, he passed for nearly 10,000 yards and 84 touchdowns in two seasons. Now, these were 18-game seasons, but still, that's a lot. And yeah, bad competition. Yeah, it's a junior league, everything else. Hey, I think he backed up later once he came to the NFL how great of a quarterback he was. So you can't just blow off those types of numbers. 8.5 yards per attempt, which is insane efficiency. And he also ran for 600 yards and six touchdowns. So more than 300 yards a season on the ground Kelly had there while he was a younger quarterback where you wouldn't have seen him as being a very athletic guy later in his career. 
So I think the thing with Kelly, when you look at his adjusted net yards per attempt, the main number that we're using here, he gets hurt by his interceptions. He was a bit of a gunslinger and he had, he probably didn't properly optimize sometimes for having a higher interception rate, but then also getting a higher yards per attempt. He was a little bit loose with the ball in the football field. And for that reason, it made it difficult for him to get the peak, peak adjusted net yard per attempt numbers for this formula. Uh, his career interception rate, so this is the percentage of passes that get intercepted, was 3.7%. So let's think about other greats from that era. Uh, Warren Moon, who was also kind of a gunslinger, was 3.4%. He was a little bit lower. Dan Marino, 3%. Steve Young, 2.6%. Uh, and, you know, Kelly wasn't great in the sack department either. He took sacks roughly at league average rate, despite not contributing much with rushing value later on in his career, for sure. Now, there are other mitigating factors to his success is that he did have a ton of talent around him. Um, if it wasn't for all these Super Bowl bursts that he they ended up getting to, uh, he might not have been able to squeak in in the Hall of Fame. First off, and I don't know how important necessarily it is for quarterback play, but of course he had Hall of Fame running back Thurman Thomas. Both of his wide receivers, James Lofton and Andre Reid, are in the Hall of Fame. And defensive end Bruce Smith is one of the greatest defensive players of all time, and that defense was a great defense. So in those four Super Bowl appearances, during those playoffs – that he went to consistently over and over again, 17 different playoff games Kelly played in, in 11 seasons, but his playoff adjusted net yards per attempt was only five. And that's substantially lower than his career average of 5.8 and even lower than his peak years, which was, which he had above six. So that's why he has a relatively low playoff value ranking, despite getting to the Super Bowl four times, despite playing in so many games, he just wasn't that good in the playoffs. So it doesn't weigh down his ranking significantly, but it also does not give the boost where perception-wise, a lot of people are probably going to give him a boost for the fact that he went to the Super Bowl so many times. And that's something that's indelibly marked in people's minds is the success they had because of those Super Bowl runs. Kelly himself was not the reason for all of that playoff success. He may not have been of large detractor from that playoff success, but he wasn't the reason for that playoff success. And that's why he's not a little bit higher up this list than you may have expected to see him. All right, let's go next to, we're going a little bit old school here. And this is Jim Hart. He is 38 on the GOAT list. His career is, is only 48. So it's quite a bit lower, but he has a big peak here, 25 Playoffs, again, not much there. 75 as far as his playoffs are concerned. I doubt I'm going to get a lot of people super interested in Hart, so I'm going to keep it fairly brief here. He played during the 60s. He played from 1966 to 1983 for the St. Louis Cardinals and one cleanup year with the Washington Redskins in 1984. But that's a long career. You may not have uh, done the math in your head, but you'd have to take, you know, not only counting fingers, but you're counting toes, a lot of toes here. 19 seasons. He was the primary starter in 13 of the 19 seasons that he played. So that's an accumulation of 180 starting games. When Hart retired, he had a lot of counting stats. He was the third leading passer of all time, only behind Fran Tarkenton and Johnny Unitas. And spoiler alert here, Fran Tarkenton and Johnny Unitas are in the top 15 easily, some, one of them, uh, of this entire analysis as greatest quarterbacks of all time. So we did have a lot in the counting stat department. Not much for accolades, though, during his career. Uh, didn't, make, didn't make the Hall of Fame. 
only second team all pro one. So he's only considered the second best quarterback for one season. Uh, he was totally immobile. So rushing value did not help him. He only had 200 rushing yards over his long career. And he only played in two playoff games. And he completed less than 50% of his passes in those games. Two touchdowns, four interceptions, less than four adjusted net yards per attempt, which gives you why he doesn't have much or any real playoff value here with the 75th ranking in playoff value. Now, a great peak number. So where does that great peak stretch come from here? The 25th best peak of any of the quarterbacks here. We got a six-year stretch from 73 to 78, so kind of in the middle years when he was with the St. Louis Cardinals, where he was top 10 in adjusted net yards per attempt every single year. That is a great six-year stretch, to be in the top 10 every year, including finishes of third, fifth, and sixth. So he was never the best quarterback in the NFL, maybe not even top five he was considered most of his seasons, but he was consistently, consistently top 10 and often around that fifth best quarterback play. Not going to wow you, not the stuff legends are made of, but a lot of value added throughout his career. And it's probably not coincidental, though, that some of his best seasons were, the, were with Don Coryell when he was hired for the Cardinals in 1973, and he coached the team till 1977, yet he was efficient outside of Coryell. So he put up huge counting stat numbers in those big passing offenses, and then, of course, Coryell went on to work with Dan Fouts, who put up some of the biggest numbers at the time ever, a lot of the biggest numbers of the time ever then. But he did have a successful stretch in an otherwise – not so successful QB wins career with Correa when they went 10 and four, 11 and three and 10 and four from 1974 to 1976. So he's probably undervalued somewhat by the public. Again, no hall of fame bid, nowhere close to that uh, because he, because de he derived so much of his efficiency from sack avoidance and the perception of strong offensive play. But as we know, you know, sacks are mostly a QB stat. QB has more control over sacks than anything else. And Hart had a substantially lower sack rate every year of his career three different seasons he had the lowest sack rate in the nfl something that he's not going to get a lot of credit for from football historians and other people there but hart deserves a lot of credit would i rank him 38th where his statistical ranking is no i'd probably rank him a little bit lower but not that much lower from this ranking okay another older player here sonny jurgensen Number 37 on the list, his career is 37, his peak is a little bit lower at 43, and his playoffs is 99. Okay, this is a guy where the stats are not going to give him enough credit. He played, he's an old olden days type of player. He played for the Eagles from 57 to 63. He played for the Washington Redskins from 64 to 74. But let me give some of the accolades here, and this is going to give the perception angle here, here, which I don't think is off for Jurgensen being better, much better than my 37th ranking here, according to his stats. He's in the Hall of Fame. He was on the all-decade team, which the Hall of Fame puts together, for the 1960s. The other two quarterbacks are Johnny Unitas and Bart Starr. He was first-team All-Pro in 1961. He led quarterbacks and MVP votes that year. He was second team all pro in 67 and 69. And again, he's playing in an era with Johnny Unitas, with Bart Starr, with some other high, high end quarterback talent that was not only high end talent, but won a lot more games. The Colts and the Packers were the two dominant teams of the NFL during that era. And it was difficult for Jurgensen to put up much in the way of playoff value. So he is probably, Jurgensen is probably the glaring example of talent over perception in his numbers. He is called 
over and over again, almost anytime you watch something on him or you read something about Jurgensen, you will see others call him the best passer, the best pure passer maybe ever is what they say a lot of time there. And he wasn't necessarily immobile, but he didn't run a lot. So he didn't get a lot of value from from his running. But if you watch some of his highlights, and I implore you to do so, he is a gunslinger's gunslinger. And we're talking off-platform. We're talking about off-the-back-foot. We're talking about different arm angles. We're talking about different trajectories of the ball. We're talking about fitting it into the zone. We're talking about hitting outs way down the field in that a lot of players would not have attempted from positions on the field, fading backwards that players would not have attempted. So for those reasons, how much he was stretching, what was really humanly possible for the quarterback to make different throws, it's, it hurt his efficiency a bit and it's going to hurt his, it's going to hurt his numbers according to these, to these numbers. I mean, let's, let's say here that um, one of the best things that I, that I heard about him was described during one of these videos where they said all of Jurgensen's passes was it was like a feather coming out of the sky. And that's how it kind of looks. I even posted a video on Twitter, a YouTube, a little clip of a YouTube video where it shows him going behind the back, completing a behind the back pass with a rusher in his face. And he's he's backpedaling because he has to fight him off with his left hand. And he's about to get sacked. He flips the ball behind his back out to the left flat to a running back who ends up taking it for a five-yard gain rather than being a sack there. And there are tons of stories about uh, Jurgensen, how much, you know, he would throw these behind the back passes 40 yards down the field. He could throw it left-handed 30 yards down the field. And he's also a guy who loved to, you know, loved to party, loved to live it up as well as he did out on the football field. Uh, I think another great quote to give you some perspective on Jurgensen is Vince Lombardi, who of, co- who of course coached Bart Starr and coached plenty, plenty of times against Johnny Unitas. The other greats of that era said of Jurgensen, he's the best I've ever seen when comparing him to anyone else. And even guys like Bart Starr is effusive in his praise about how great and physically talented Jurgensen was. Now, he never led the efficiency. He never led the NFL efficiency any season. Again, higher standard deviation type of play that he would give you, higher ups and higher downs. So he was consistently good, but never really great in his overall numbers. But if he's someone you needed to throw you back in a game, he's definitely someone you would pick before anyone else. And he made up for some losses in efficiency with volume. He was the focal point of the offense, even for offenses playing in the late 50s and through the 60s. He was taking it to a next level as far as how much he was throwing the ball. I was just watching a game the other day where Frank Tarkenton breaks his record for most completions in a season. Uh, Not close as far as how many yards he had in a season, but most completions in a season. And we're talking about decades afterwards in longer seasons. So Jurgensen left led the NFL in passing five different times, setting the single season record twice by passing for over 3,700 yards in an era where the average team only passed for 2,500 yards. He had 508 pass attempts in 1967, which equals 36 per game. And for more context here, that is one more than Matthew Stafford averaged last season in the you know pass-happy NFL of today. Stafford was eighth in total pass attempts. It wasn't like Stafford was not throwing the ball. And, you know, as the lack of playoff success, Jurgensen was a starter for Philadelphia and Washington for 10 seasons from 1961 to 1970. Those teams never made the playoffs, despite his strong play. His teams had a combined record during that time of 56 and 68. You know, he never played with an above average defense his entire career. And again, he had to deal with the roadblocks of the Colts 
and the Packers as far as ever being able to get into the playoffs. The best season he had from a win-loss perspective was 10-4, and but was not good enough to make the playoffs back in the olden days where only two teams qualified for the playoffs for that NFL championship. So go check them out, kiddos. Go check this guy out, Sonny Jurgensen. I think he's a lot of fun. He did some announcing later on in his life, which I thought was great. And he's one of these guys where the numbers aren't going to jump off the page, but the, the, the acclaim and how he was held up as being the greatest passer of all time, I think a lot of that comes through when you watch some of the footage of him throwing the ball on YouTube. All right, next on our list, this is a much more familiar face here, Donovan McNabb. QB GOAT 36. He's 36 on the ranking here. His career ranking is 39. His peak is also 39. Playoffs, 78. Wasn't very successful in the playoffs. I think McNabb is someone you could rank in the 20s or you could rank in the 40s. You could rank anywhere in between that. And I wouldn't necessarily argue with any of the rankings because it all depends on what you want to weigh as being most important. Uh, To go over the particulars here, McNabb, we all remember mostly his time with the Philadelphia Eagles from 1999 to 2009. He played a season with the Washington Redskins and then a season with the Minnesota Vikings. Now, his only accolades are six Pro Bowls. No MVPs, although he was second in MVP voting his first year as a starter in 2000 uh, behind Marshall Falk. But yet no quarterbacks were ahead of him in the MVP voting, but he didn't make an all pro team. He was still behind Rich Gannon and Peyton Manning as far as being an All-Pro. So he never was a first-team All-Pro, never was a second-team All-Pro. While that isn't the most important thing in the world to me, those are important metrics for me when I'm thinking about peak beyond stats, thinking about how you were perceived in your career. Now, what McNabb was is he was a winner. What credit you want to give him, what credit you want to give Andy Reid, what credit you want to give the talent around him, there's no denying He never had a losing season in Philadelphia when he started at least 10 games. In a five-year stretch from 2000 to 2004, the Eagles won at least 11 games every single year. He's always been a polarizing player. He has large stats, large accumulation of passing stats, more than peak efficiency. But he also never really had great receiving talent outside of one year where he played with Terrell Owens. And in that year... His efficiency did jump in his adjusted net yards per attempt was third, only behind Peyton Manning and Dante Culpepper when Culpepper was going absolutely insane with Randy Moss. And a couple of years at the end of his career, he had Deshaun Jackson his time in Philadelphia. So he had another great receiver. But other than that, okay, I'm going to give you McNabb's leading receivers that he had during his 10 seasons as an Eagles quarterback. Here, Here are some of his leading receivers. And remember, this is a guy that people maybe think his stats are unjustified, but it's hard to really point to the supporting cast as far as receivers boosting his stats. Chad Lewis, James Thrash, Reggie Brown, Kevin Curtis, and Todd Pinkston twice was a, was a leading wide receiver for him. Uh, yet, you know, he has this perception that he was elevated by the system, elevated by Andy Reid, but he didn't have a lot of talent around him. And as far as his rushing value is concerned, 13th of all time in rushing value added that really boosts up his numbers, despite the fact that his general passing efficiency numbers weren't as good as his rushing efficiency. He played in a ton of playoff games, 16 different playoff games. He made it to one Super Bowl, lost in the Super Bowl to the Patriots. He lost three straight years in the conference championship. So they did have successful deep runs into the playoffs for multiple years, but 
His passing efficiency in the playoffs was around five adjusted net yards per attempt, which was more than a yard lower than what his regular season average was. So he did not step up in the playoffs. Does he belong in the Hall of Fame? I am going to lean no because my stats don't really back it up. He's borderline at best. There are 27 modern era quarterbacks in the Hall of Fame right now. There are another six who are not eligible, who are pretty much locks to get in. So that means it's somewhere in the 30s is where you would say you have to be one of the you know 33rd, 34th best quarterback in the NFL in order to qualify. That's That's the demarcation line. For me, he doesn't quite make it there. But, you know, his work's cut out for him. He's he's already had seven years of eligibility. He's never even made it to the 25 semifinalists. So I don't think he's going to make it there. I could see why someone would make that argument. I wouldn't protest for him making the Hall of Fame. This is not a Eli Manning type of Hall of Fame addition. Manning is someone, according to my stats, who I think shows up as 60th in his efficient in his total value added over his career. But um, but he's a no. McNabb is a, is a no for me, although it wouldn't be the worst decision ever. All right, next here, we're going back old school again. John Brody at 35. Uh, try to pay attention a little bit to what I'm talking about for Brody here, because when we go to 34, we're going to talk about his predecessor in San Francisco. And it's important to kind of see these two guys, I think, um, in context, because Brody was coming in after one of the, the, the greatest quarterbacks, you know, a Hall of Fame quarterback after that and that's a tough place always to be in so Brody played for the San Francisco 49ers from 1957 to 1973 and his accolades is he won the MVP in 1970 so he does have an MVP near the end of his career there remember that's you know 14 15 years into his career and he has a second team all pro also where he was considered to be the second best quarterback in the NFL he had a love-hate relationship with the 49ers faithful, maybe more like a hate-love relationship. He came in for YA Tittle, who ended up revitalizing his career. Tittle ended up revitalizing his career after he was traded away. The 49ers traded him away to the Giants, where he had the most, at least postseason, success, win success of his career with the Giants. And I think a lot of 49ers fans saw that, that he shouldn't have been traded away thinking he was declining. Brody came in and... It wasn't until his 10th season as a starter that the 49ers made the playoffs. Uh, But then they did for three straight seasons at that point. So for that reason, maybe a little bit like Garcia, Brody was viewed as someone who didn't didn't stack up to the expectations of the lost love of the former quarterbacks who were there. Uh, But Brody played a lot, as you see there, playing from 57 to 73. When he retired, he was the fourth leading passer in NFL history behind only Johnny Unitas, Y.A. Tittle, who I mentioned before, and Fran Tarkenton. Brody was another of these less respected quarterbacks because he minimized sacks and he did not he did not stretch the field. He minimized negatives and that made him a little bit less of someone who was viewed outstandingly by the football uh, community. So again, he's more of a career accumulation guy, according to this list, but he does make it 35. I have no problem with him not being in the hall of fame though, considering his entire career. Okay. Now let's go to, to YA Tittle and this picture, if you're seeing this on YouTube here, this is one of the most famous photographs in all of NFL history. I would probably say, Uh, You can find this if you ever visit the Hall of Fame in Canton. You'll see this picture here. It's entitled Fallen Giants. Now, this is when Tittle was playing for the Giants, his final season. He played a lot of years 
uh, you know, Hall of Famer. He played for the Colts for a few years, the San Francisco 49ers for 10 years from 51 to 60, and then the Giants to wrap up his career in one of the most successful portions of his career from 61 to 64. So this is 1964. This is the final season of Y.A. Tittle's career. Just to talk about this photo a little bit for those who can't see it, uh, you see him you know, on, on, knee, on his knees, on the field, helmets off a little bit in the distance, blood dripping from his temple and from his forehead. Again, he's an older player. He's uh, balding, to say the least, black and white photo. And he just looks worn out and depleted almost at this at this point. And that's 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 put into there. The fallen giant has kind of got, you know, double meaning there. Giant because he was with the New York Giants and one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time also here. So if you want the, the context for this exact play, it was the second game of his final season in 1964. They were up 14 nothing. The Giants were up 14 nothing basically looking to, put, looking to put the game out of reach. Instead, playing against the Pittsburgh Steelers, Pittsburgh Steelers defensive end John Baker slammed right into Tittles, right in the chest, sternum to helmet. And his pass went throwing, fluttering up in the air. It was intercepted. The Steelers eventually ended up scoring. Uh, Tittle suffered a cracked sternum, concussion, and separation of rib cage from the muscle. Yet... He came back into the game later on in the game, but then had to leave again when he looked too shaken there and they were not able to win that game. And eventually at the Giants, after having an extremely successful three year run of winning their division and getting to the championship game uh, in in Tittle's final season, they were two ten and two. So fell apart there after going eleven and three the previous season. So that is the, the context on this iconic uh, photograph here for those who don't see it go ahead and look up fallen giant on there uh so let's go over the particulars why a tittle qb goat he is 34th his career 28th peak 53 so not the highest peak here playoffs 113 so really not the highest as far as the playoffs are, are concerned and i'll get into why his number is so low as far as that goes okay his uh, oh, I also Yelberton Abraham Tittle Jr. here. If you want to know what YA Tittle stands for, accolades Hall of Fame, MVP 1963, three time first team All Pro. So, three different seasons, he was considered to be the best quarterback in the NFL. He did not make the all decade team though for the 50s because he had these early 60s years where he was very productive and had the most team success of his career in the 60s. So he's one of these guys who were his career got split along the 50s and 60s. So then he didn't make the all decade team. But I feel like he's someone who could almost be considered an all decade type of player. 17 seasons starting all the way. He started all the way from his rookie season, 22 years old, all the way through age 38. He retired as the NFL's all time leader in passing yards, passing touchdowns, attempts, completions and game played. All those different things. Now, he was originally drafted by the Lions, but he chose to play for the Baltimore Colts, who at this point in time, remember we're talking about 1948 here, they were part of something called the All-American Football Conference, the AAFC. The Colts dissolved after a few unsuccessful seasons. So let's imagine this is a, this is a different era in football here where you have teams that are just dissolving and going away. And then he re-entered the draft and was taken by the San Francisco 49ers. So he joined something that was called the Million Dollar Backfield in San Francisco. He played with three great running backs, Hall of Famers Joe Perry and Hugh McElney and John Henry Johnson. So he played with three guys who were all Hall of, 
All Hall of Famers Perry and McElney were selections to the all-decade team for the 50s. And from 1951 to 1957, playing with this million-dollar backfield, Tittle had better than average efficiency in all but one season, but never anything spectacular. Uh, he had a handful of, of below-average years at the end of his time with the 49ers. That's why he was his career was seen as being over, as I mentioned when I was talking about John Brody earlier. And they traded him away to the Giants. And he enjoyed a rebirth at 35 years old in 1961. For the next three years, he finished fifth, first, and first in adjusted yards per attempt. Uh, better efficiency every single season than Johnny Unitas or Bart Starr. And Tittle played on a very, very strong Giants team that won 33 games over those seasons. And we're talking about 14-game seasons at this point in time. Uh, but unfortunately, they ended with devastating losses in the championship game. This is back when there's only one playoff game. There's two. There were two conferences or two divisions within the NFL. Those two teams played against each other. That was it. That was the championship. So in 61 and 62, they lost to the Packers by a combined score of 53 to 7 in those two different games. And in 1963, they lost to the Bears 14 to 10. These are the weak performances that lower uh, YA Tittle's playoff ranking to being so, so, so low at 113. If you look at these games, in these games that he played, these five playoff games, he threw four touchdowns and 14 interceptions. He only averaged 2.1 adjusted yards per attempt. His career average was over six. So he just did not really, really play well at all. And I'm sure that haunted him a lot where he didn't have a lot of chances. But in those three chances, things went very, very wrong. Um, not a lot of rushing value for Tittle here. He only, he only ran for about 1,200 yards during his career. But he is 22nd rushing value added because of the fact that he had a really enormous 39 rushing touchdowns. He was a big dude. Um, I think, you know, one of the best players ever probably deserves to be a little bit higher on this list, but he never quite combined the peak five-year period. He had a much better, like, peak three-year period with the Giants. And the playoffs hold him down quite a bit here where, you know, as a stats guy, I probably – when we're looking at predicting performance going forward, I wouldn't give as much credit to the playoffs as I'm giving here, but this is more of a descriptive hall of fame type of analysis. And we have to weigh the important games a lot more heavily. And unfortunately for Tittle, that that brings him down quite a bit with the lack of playoff success and just playing poorly in the playoffs. All right, let's go. Broadway. Joe is next here. Joe Namath. I will say Joe Namath is the most misunderstood quarterback in the Hall of Fame as far as what his stats mean versus what his legend mean. Was he just a creation of the media? Was he just all hype? Or was he really this great quarterback? Very confusing, especially if you're going to look at counting stats and even more so touchdown interception ratio. People love to bring up the touchdown interception ratio for Namath. Um, it's kind of like the things he did best. Some of them doesn't don't show up in the stats, especially the stats of the era, which is not taking sacks. And the things that he was really a gunslinger, but he didn't fumble the ball because he wasn't taking sacks, but he did turn over the ball with INTs. That's kind of in the front of people's minds where they don't give him enough credit. Okay, let's get into Joe Namath here. New York Jets from 1965 to 1976, and then one season with the Los Angeles Rams in 1977. Hmm. Another thing when it comes to stats for Namath, some of those, those last couple seasons are really rough where he just piles up interceptions um, 
that end up skewing his career numbers. But the accolades, very, very, very strong accolades here. Hall of Fame, Super Bowl champion, Super Bowl MVP, AFL Rookie of the Year, two-time AFL Player of the Year. And he was playing with the Jets. You know, it was the AFL, NFL at that point. And one first-team All-Pro, two second-team All-Pros. That's a lot of accolades, especially for someone 33rd on the list. He could probably be a bit higher. Um, I think it helps to inform maybe the numbers versus the perception angle on Namath to go all the way back to his time in Alabama. We played for the Crimson Tide. He played underneath legendary coach Bear Bryant. They won a national championship in 1964, but one, you know, the significant pivot point on his career, which didn't derail his career, but shifted his career quite a bit for what he could do, maybe took some of the top off of his career and made him a different type of player also was a non-contact knee injury that he suffered. It was the fourth game of the 1964 season. It was later revealed. Of course, they didn't know at the time. They didn't have the exploratory surgery and all that stuff. It was later revealed that this knee injury, that non-contact knee injury that he had, significant cartilage damage. He tore at least one ligament. And But guess what? He just returned a couple weeks later before he injured his knee again, then he injured his knees two subsequent times during that season, each time letting the swelling go down and try to play again, didn't end up working. At the end of his college years, uh, his, his surgeon, Dr. James Nicholas, noted that Namath had, quote unquote, the knees of a 70-year-old man. And this is after graduating college. And, you know, these surgeries were very experimental at the time. During his career, throughout his entire NFL career, he had six different knee surgeries. And quite often when he was playing, he'd have to have his knee drained at halftime so he could just finish the game on many different occasions. But the important part about this is not just, you know, the pain, the surgery, missing time, but the way it transformed who Namath was. Namath was, at least at the time, a dual threat quarterback, that perception. At Alabama over these three seasons where, again, he didn't play every game, he had over 200 carries and 15 rushing touchdowns in three partial college seasons. He played... 13 years in the AFL and NFL, he only had 71 carries and seven touchdowns. So 200 carries, 15 touchdowns in what would be the equivalent of like 2.5 NFL seasons over 13 NFL seasons. When he, and that's when he was in college, the big numbers over 13 NFL seasons, 71 carries, seven touchdowns. He just couldn't run anymore. Uh, the knees bar that bothered him too much to do that out of the 115 quarterbacks in this analysis, Namath ranked 111th in rushing value added during his career. And obviously that number would have been much, much, much higher if he hadn't had suffered those injuries. Okay. But enough about the, the what if sort of stuff. Namath did adjust. He moved past what he had it and he had a skill set of a quick release, quick decision-making and a quick drop. He could actually get back in the pocket pretty quickly where he never took sacks. He barely, I mean, he was the best. He was the damn Marino. No one really played at that sort of level as far as not taking sacks until Marino with his quick release ended up doing the same thing in the eighties. So because of that, he didn't lose value there. He didn't lose fumbles, but he was a gunslinger and he threw a lot of INTs. The number you're the the ratio you're going to hear is the TD INT ratio when it comes to Namath. 173 touchdowns to 220 interceptions. How could you possibly make the Hall of Fame when you look like that? Well, a couple different pieces of context here. The last few years of when he was a severe decline, he had 22 touchdowns and 49 interceptions. So it was really threw that off. But even if you exclude those, he did have more interceptions than touchdowns. But let's let's think about quarterback play holistically here. There are four components to quarterback efficiency. The foundation is yards per attempt. 
Then touchdown percentage, where we're going to give a little bit more value for getting those touchdowns versus not. Um, and then you have the negatives of interceptions and sack yards lost. But yards per attempt is the foundation. Namath was top three AFL passer in yards per attempt every single season. And if you net out sack yards, so if you're going to say net yards per attempt, we're not going to worry about touchdowns and interceptions, but we're just going to look at net yards per attempt where you're taking out the sack yards. He was the highest of his generation. He was the highest in AFL history at seven net yards per attempt. His 6.6 career mark is well ahead of contemporaries like Len Dawson, uh, Bob Greasy, Daryl LaMonica, and he's even ahead of guys like Roger Staubach, who you'll see is very, very high on my quarterback rating list here. And so, so that's another player who is, is just like, if you don't think about yards per attempt and you don't think about the great sack play and you just focus too much laser focus on TDINT, you're going to totally miss the boat when it comes to analyzing how great Namath was. And I would also say, this is another guy, just like with Jurgensen earlier, watch, uh, I'm, I'm sounding like a football guy here. Watch the film because you see someone who is adept at moving around, who has that lightning quick release, who just looks like a superstar type of player for what he's doing, even if it didn't show up in the interception to touchdown ratio. Now, sacks were only started being tracking in 1969, so some of it is not part of his ranking here, which would boost him up a bit. But if you look at every single year when they did start to track sacks, he was either best or second best in avoiding sacks every single one of those seasons. Now, he also threw the ball a lot, which is a signal to a great player is when you allow them to throw the ball a lot, even if they might not get you the best efficiency, allowing them to throw more is better than not, you know, than running the ball in these circumstances. He threw close to 500 passes in multiple seasons. He was the first quarterback to pass for 4,000 yards in a season. He did that during a 14-game season in 1967. And the record was eventually broken by Dan Fouts, but that was a 16-game season in 1979. So it took 13 years, and it also, I'm sorry, 12 years, and it also took an extra couple games in the season for him to barely break that. Um, And if you think about it, he threw those 4,000 yards when the average AFL team only threw for 2,500 yards. He averaged 8.2 yards per attempt, where the league average was 5.5. Massive, massive efficiency for Namath, and he didn't take sacks. So I think even when it comes to the playoffs, the perception of Namath is a bit off. There's, there's, you know, they won 16-9 in this famous I guarantee game against the unstoppable Baltimore Colts who were favored by multiple touchdowns in that game. You see 16-9, you say, oh, well, his defense won that game for him. Yes, the defense played really well, but Namath did throw for over 200 yards. He didn't have a touchdown, but did not throw a touchdown. But he threw for over 200 yards, 7.5 yards per attempt, both solid numbers that led to his being the MVP. And the Jets had 43 rushing attempts, but only averaged 3.3 yards per carry. So they were content to sit on a little lead, grind the ball out, highly inefficient running game that took up all of these carries probably a massive mistake in hindsight but they were such a huge underdog that when they were playing well and their defense was playing well and they had a bit of a lead they really took the foot off the gas there where Namath could have been passing it much more but if we had EPA at the time I think we would find that Namath's expected points added numbers would be really good he the he kept drives alive he was five of eight on third down including conversions of eight seven and six yards 
And he had another conversion that also his receiver fumbled the ball, which ended up losing a, a possession for them. So they, they ran the ball a ton. Yes. Namath didn't have huge stats. Yes. But he was the one who enabled them to continue running the ball with such an inefficient running game. And he was the best player for the Jets in that Super Bowl victory said you can't really split it up amongst all the defenders there. So Namath, one of the most misunderstood quarterbacks, clearly in my book, a Hall of Famer, probably someone who belongs somewhere more around 20th as far as the best quarterbacks. But the stats can't really combine everything that he brought to the game. And if he could have had a full career with his mobility that he had at Alabama, who knows? He could have easily been a top 10 quarterback of all time. All right. Troy Aikman here, 32. Another guy who is going to be misunderstood. Who's definitely going to be misunderstood. And again, touchdowns are going to be a big part of the misunderstanding. Touchdown to interception ratio. Okay, let's go to the particulars though for Aikman. So he played for the Cowboys from 1989 to 2000. And for my numbers here, his career is 35, his peak is 41, and his playoff number is 14th best. That playoff number is going to be big. That playoff number is going to move him up quite a bit. Unlike some of these other great players in this tier who had better career or peak numbers, but bad playoff numbers, whose games went down during the playoffs, Troy Aikman's game went up, way up during the playoffs. And we got to respect that. We got to respect that. Even if it's not necessarily the most predictive thing, it mattered. It, it was a huge value and it was a huge driver of the Cowboys success in those Super Bowl runs. Um, accolades for Aikman, Hall of Fame, three-time Super Bowl champion, one-time Super Bowl MVP, but no all pros, no first or second team all pros. So he was never really considered as a regular season quarterback to be the best or the second best quarterback in any season that he played. So he was a low-volume passer. That's part of the reason uh, against him when we're going to be in the counting stat era that he's not going to look that great. Played with the best running game in the NFL, great defenses, Hall of Famer Michael Irvin to throw to. Now, you can't say the Cowboys' dynasty was because of Troy Aikman, but you also can't, can't say it was in spite of him. And better yet, I think what you can say is that he was a perfect complement to the other pieces that they had on this team. He was willing to take a back seat, let the running game be number one in that offense, despite being a former number one pick. And he was just never going to get the counting stats that anyone else would. The big stat that he missed out on because of the way that offense was structured was touchdowns, his touchdown rate. So it's the percentage of passes, pass attempts that end up being touchdowns with 3.5% over his career, which is extremely low. And they just didn't give the ball to him to rack up easy touchdowns once they got near the end zone. They were so effective running the ball and running the ball is a great thing to do. Even nerds will tell you running the ball is a good thing to do in the red zone or in the green zone, whatever you want to call when you're inside the 10 yard line, when you're really trying to score there, they didn't give it to Aikman. They gave it to Emmett Smith, you know, during the Cowboys most successful stretch where they went to the Super Bowl. I mean, when they won the Super Bowl three times from 92 to 95, that four year stretch, Emmett Smith scored 75 touchdowns during the regular season in those four years. So it's almost averaging 20 per season. And these shorter touchdowns can make a huge difference on your totals. I mean, here's, here's a, an example. Aaron Rodgers has won the MVP the last two seasons. During the last two regular seasons, Aaron Rodgers has thrown 
33 touchdown passes from the five-yard line in. 33 touchdown passes. That's 40% of all of his touchdown passes the last two seasons came on these little dinky touchdown passes. Aikman just was not getting those. That's why Aikman finished his career with only 24 more touchdowns than he had interceptions. It just looks bad versus his contemporaries. Uh, Brett Favre, Dan Marino, Steve Young, they all had at least 125 more touchdowns than interceptions. Aikman didn't even have 25 more touchdowns than interceptions. Uh, Aikman also excelled in sack avoidance, nine straight seasons of above average adjusted net yards per attempt during his prime. Twice he had the second best number in the NFL, even without getting the boost from touchdowns, the adjustment boost from touchdowns there. But we have to talk about the playoffs. The playoffs are a huge part of what drives Aikman up here and to me makes him justified for being a Hall of Famer, although not a strong Hall of Fame case, but definitely a Hall of Famer for me. So he had the 14th most playoff value in history. He averaged 6.2 adjusted yards per attempt over 16 games, which is above his career average. But let's look at the most important window here. So in a window where the Cowboys went, win the Super Bowl, win the Super Bowl, lose in the conference championship game, win the Super Bowl, 1992 to 1995, there were 11 different games Troy Aikman played, and he basically put up MVP numbers over those 11 games. He had 3,000 passing yards, 30 attempts per game, 21 touchdowns to eight interceptions. Remember, for his career, he was plus 24 during all those regular season games. In this four-year stretch of the playoffs, He's plus 13. He's more than halfway to his career just over these 11 games. And during those those four years, his adjusted net yards per attempt was eight. The best regular season that Aikman had was seven. And eight was only topped by any regular season during the 1990s. Was only topped by Steve Young. A couple of different seasons he had over an eight number for his adjusted net yards per attempt. But he was basically playing at a top five all-time type of quarterback level during those 11 playoff games, which netted the Cowboys three Super Bowl victories. You got to respect that. You have to respect that and make that a big part of your evaluation. So Aikman's career value, again, it's only in the 30s. His peak value isn't in is the 40s. You know, those alone would not be close to enough for the Hall of Fame, but the playoffs makes all the difference here. And that's why I think his his Hall of Fame case is very justified. All right, let's wrap her up here with a name you may not be expecting here, but again, it's a guy who gets a lot more rushing value than some people realize, and that is Rich Gannon at 31. It's funny that the last person that I'm going to discuss in this is not in the Hall of Fame and you know will not make the Hall of Fame, I'm pretty certain. Uh, but let's talk about the case for him making the Hall of Fame. I think he's borderline. So Gannon, uh, he played for the Minnesota Vikings from 87 to 92, the Redskins for a single season in 93, the Chiefs from 95 to 98, and then the Oakland Raiders, which we mostly remember him for, for six years at the end of his career from 1999 to 2004. Now, the numbers that I have for his career numbers, and again, 45 for his career, so not the greatest here, a very high peak at 18. To say he had a top 20 peak to his career, some people probably won't believe, but he did. Not great playoffs, though. So the playoffs hold him down a bit. And the peak is going to be a combination of his. He's just an efficiency quarterback. 
he's probably overvalued a little bit by the efficiency metric. So he is an efficiency quarterback, but he also had some rushing value that people may not be appropriately weighing in his ranking. So let's think about this. Where does he stand? There are 11 quarterbacks that who have earned Associated Press first team all pro honors more than once. So in other words, more than one year in their career, they were considered to be the best quarterback in the NFL. Okay, only 11 quarterbacks have done that. They are Bob Greasy, Dan Fouts, Dan Marino, Joe Montana, Steve Young, Brett Favre, Kurt Warner, Peyton Manning, Tom Brady, Aaron Rodgers, and Rich Gannon. Every single one of those other guys is in the Hall of Fame, or in the case of Brady and Rodgers, will be in the Hall of Fame. Locks for the Hall of Fame, other than Rich Gannon. So he's the only quarterback in NFL history that has been considered by the press, by the popular press, to be the best quarterback in the NFL for multiple seasons, but is not going to make the Hall of Fame. So he's mostly a peak versus career player. From 1999 to 2002, so for the first, what is that, four years of his time with the Raiders, his efficiency, again, my preferred metric, adjusted net yards per attempt, his efficiencies rankings were 6th, ninth, 4th, and 4th. And he brought a lot more value back with the running game. Despite being an older quarterback at his peak, he didn't start. He didn't start until until age 34, Okay. Um, he averaged 300 rushing yards and three touchdowns during that same four-year stretch. I'm sorry, not that he didn't start until he was 34. That, that, that run with the, with the Raiders did not start until he was 34 years old. So during that same four-year stretch I'm talking about where he had the deficiency was so great passing the ball, he averaged 300 yards rushing and three touchdowns a game during that same peak. That's what gives him the monster peak number in this calculation. You know, might not be the most impressive passer. Um, driving a lot of his, his efficiency was having – High completion percentage, low A dot type of passes, avoiding interceptions, avoiding sacks, never really had the wow factor, although he did win. I mean, he won an MVP, right? So he did have that going for him as a quarterback. Um, but those are probably the reasons why he's just not going to be Hall of Fame real consideration, um, despite, like I said, the two time All Pro and the MVP. Those were seen as maybe being a little more fluky, a little more system-based, a little bit more of a weird thing that happened at the end of his career than a true reflection of his talent. I think I'd be fine putting him into the Hall of Fame, but if I had a vote, I'd probably still vote no on Gannon just because he didn't have enough early on in his career, despite that super huge peak he had at the end of his career. I love peak. I think peak's an important thing when judging players, maybe not as important for quarterbacks as others, but I would probably lean against him even though he's 31st on this list and there are uh, hall of famers or lock hall of famers go well into the, into the thirties, as far as the number of players in there for me, he just does not quite make it. All right, everybody, we, we, we made it through the quarterbacks here ranked 40 through 31. I will come at you next week with another installment of this series to go from 30 down to 21. We're really getting into the thick of things here with a bunch of familiar names. You're going to see there hall of famers left and right. Although some who are not hall of famers yet. And we're going to start to get into, you know, some modern quarterbacks. Some guys who may still be playing. So you can see where they rank up 
with the accumulation in their career to this point versus a lot of the all-time greats. Then we're going to get into, you know, well, I guess it'll be 20 through 11. You're going to get some of the best of the best of the best there. And then, of course, the final 10 you'll see to end the season, which I'm sure there'll be no controversy about for anyone how those rankings end up. All right. I hope you enjoyed this. Uh, let me know, actually, in the comments, if you're watching this on YouTube, let me know whether you prefer the the screen up with the player's picture and his rankings the entire time rather than going back to me. Um talking the entire time because I could kind of do it either way. If it's more engaging the second way, I can just put the player up and then bring them down as I'm discussing all these things, but I am reading a lot of notes off of there. So it may look a little distracting as I'm looking down. Anyway, thanks so much for listening, everyone. I'll come back at you next Monday with the weekly what's going on in the world of statistical analysis and NFL updates. And then another installment of the series on Wednesday. Go ahead, rate, review the pod, leave comments on YouTube. I read them, I respond to them, and I eventually aggregate them for mailbag episodes. Otherwise, I appreciate everyone tuning in and I'll be talking at you again next week.